every week, journalists at the University of Florida College of Journalism and Communications report important stories for the people of North Central Florida and beyond. Basically, there's just less knowledge that the public is going to have now if this passes and goes through. It is unclear how much this new regulation will impact those texts because those people are already doing something that is illegal. Madison is a demographically black town in one of Florida's black districts, and that district would be wiped off the map, basically, under DeSantis's plan. This is The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host for today, Melissa Fato. I'll take you through the strongest reporting coming out of our newsroom and a discussion with the journalists who write these stories. Let's get into the stories from this week. Florida's legislature is considering proposals to keep details about the deaths of children who die in domestic violence cases hidden from the public. The bills came from a Gainesville family's tragic story of two young boys murdered last summer by their father. Fresh Take Florida reporter Anna Wilder has been covering the case for months and brings us an overview of the current situation. So from your reporting, we learned that the Florida legislature is considering a proposal that would limit public information about certain child deaths in the state. Can you first run me through some of the logistics of this bill? The bills are HB 1513 um, by Representative uh, Charles Clemens and SB 1550 by Senator Keith Perry. These bills basically would block public access to autopsies of children under the age of 18 killed in domestic violence cases. Um, And that's something that, you know, we made sure to be pretty specific about because this is not limiting autopsies of children under 18 in general. It is specifically having to do with domestic violence cases. They're actually proposing to name the bill after, uh, the two young boys who were murdered, and the name would be the Rex and Brody Reinhardt Act. Just for some context, can you tell me what the current Florida laws are concerning autopsies? Like it's public information, but these bills would make it so it would like block any public access to um, these in domestic violence cases. And last August, um, when we were reporting on this, the mother of the children, um, her lawyer asked the media to refrain from publishing like details about the deaths um, in the autopsy reports because it was extremely upsetting and obviously terrible, terrible incident. But the autopsies had revealed um, some details that investigators had actually not yet released. Most of the news coverage that had happened was focused on the disclosure that Paul Reinhardt, who had shot and killed the boys, but it had not come out that he had shot and killed the boys um, like before the autopsies came out. So the autopsies were really actually an important piece of accountability in the sense where we had not formally known that. Um, We only knew about the original incident, not how they had died. And investigators still haven't released the final police report with information regarding where he got the gun, um, you know, if he formally owned a gun and that kind of stuff. 
With that discussion happening in the legislature, from what I understand, there's another happening at the federal court level. What can you tell me about that and what it's involving? I started following this story back in my fall semester reporting with Fresh Take Florida, and I was reporting with um, Elisa Bell, who is now a graduate of UF, but we originally reported the story when the autopsies came out, and then we followed up when court documents came out about um, funding regarding Paul's life insurance. Right now, that is still going on. So Mindy and Conrad, who is Paul's brother, have basically asked a federal judge to determine whether Paul properly updated his life insurance policies before the murders. He intended to move his wife as the beneficiary and then replace her with Conrad and actually submitted the paperwork to the insurance company nine days before these murders happened. He also updated his will just weeks before the killings to prevent Mindy from receiving any of the assets. So in these newly filed records, there is a lot between Conrad and Mindy based on the life insurance payout and who's going to receive that now. The reason we wrote this story was really because I have been following that legal battle and kind of the feud between Mindy and Conrad, but when the bills were filed, especially because the final police report hasn't come out, we felt like it was important to update, um, especially talking about the impact these bills could have, but also to include the information about um, kind of that legal monetary battle between Conrad and Mindy too. With that back and forth happening and a scheduled trial, as you said, set for November, where is the current bill at in terms of action in the legislature? Has it been argued? Has it been assigned to any committees yet? Kind of where is it at right now? Legislative panels advanced both bills uh, last week in like different hearings. So it's basically early steps towards becoming a new law. For the Senate Bill 1550, I know that is now in governmental oversight and accountability as of the 26th of January, but there are no updates as far as that goes. And the House Bill um, is actually on the committee's agenda for the Government Operations Subcommittee that was like in the House. So that should be coming up to discuss soon. And we are also continuing to watch for the final police report from Dixie County that has basically been in the works since the murders happened last summer. So it seems that you've been following this story for a bit. How did you originally find it? First Take Florida started reporting this before I was actually a reporter with them. Thomas Weber originally did the first few stories, I think, on um, when the terrible incident happened over summer. I think he did the initial report and basically kind of digging into what happened. I think that these two new bills are extremely interesting because there is some who have mentioned the whole public record side of it in the sense of it does restrict. I interviewed Virginia Hamrick and she's a lawyer with the Florida First Amendment Foundation. She's saying like 
basically there's just less knowledge that the public is going to have now if uh, this passes and goes through. But at the same time, this has, um, you know, really pushed what seems like the community to come forth and make this a bill. I have been following it and trying to keep myself updated um, to kind of see what happens. It's definitely of interest in Florida to a lot of people. I know a lot of people really just felt for this family and um I think it like definitely caught a lot of attention in the community um so I hopefully plan to continue to see what happens with the final police report as well as just what's going to happen with these bills and uh kind of what holds the future of whether or not these records will be able to be requested with that kind of going into play That was Fresh Take Florida's Anna Wilder speaking with producer Ariana Aspidu. You're listening to The Rewind from WUFT News. We'll be right back. Tell Me About It is about the very people who touch the heart of North Central Florida. I'm your host, Sue Wagner, and each week we talk to those who work to elevate the quality of life in our area. That's Tell Me About It, Sunday mornings at 7 a.m. here on WUFT. Welcome back to The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host today, Melissa Fato. Let's move on to our next story. Most people can say they've received a political text message, either praising or criticizing a candidate during an election. These texts can be irritating, leaving you wondering who is behind them. The Florida Election Commission is cracking down on political texts, requiring them to explicitly say who paid for them. Breaking the new rules will result in a fine of $250 per text. Producer Sarah Mandile spoke with Fresh Take Florida reporter Carolina Elvento about these new rules and what they mean. So the article is basically featuring um, the details and the the effects of a new rule proposed to the Senate. And the rule is just basically to add new regulations to political campaigning in texting so that um, any parties or candidates are required to identify sponsorship in sending those texts. So basically those texts that you get for political campaigning, it would just have a disclaimer at the end saying this is a paid message by x y and z okay interesting how did you find this story what um made you interested in writing about it so i came across the rule itself um and i was speaking to my professor professor brightis who works with fresh take florida and we were just curious to see how this would impact um, lawmakers and how i was particularly interested to see how this would impact those dirty trick messages so kind of like things that come from third parties or bots. Um, So we just started the reporting process, talked to some political campaigners to better understand what would be the impact of the rule. Gotcha. And what are some of the rules that Florida is making regarding those texts? 
So basically, there was already a law in place that um, kind of had a lot of regulations on political campaigning in general. So if you ever see a commercial or something on the radio for political campaigns, it does have a disclaimer at the end that says this is a paid message by. Um, what happened was that texting, because they're sent by peer-to-peer um, -peer texting, um, because those are sent by individual numbers and they're personalized, so they'll have your name at the beginning of them. Um, they were kind of, they didn't qualify within the law. And there was also a character limit. So with this new rule, um, it's just basically making sure that this, that already existing law was also implemented into um, texting as well. You were able to speak with some of the people behind political text messages. Could you mention who they were and what their views were on the new rules? Yes, of course. So, so I was able to talk to Ben Torpy, um, who is a political consultant at Ozean Media. That is a political campaign um, agency, and they do have a lot of clients who are Republican mostly. And his views of like his feedback from this, he did say that he does think that te texting is a very strong political campaign tactic, and they do invest a lot of money on it. So what he was explaining to me is that because these texts, this new rule would require them to add that sentence of sponsorship at the end, it would increase costs um, for political campaigns and even double them potentially. Um, but he also explained to me that because the budget for these large campaigns is so large, it wouldn't impact them negatively. It wouldn't make them not send texts. He did say that for smaller campaigns, for candidates that maybe don't have as large of a budget, this might be something that stops them from using this tactic because their, their budget is just not available for a doubled cost. But I also spoke to Stephen Vancouver, who is the president of Vancouver Jones Communications. And this agency works mostly with um, Democratic candidates. Like in the past, it has worked with Democratic candidates. And he told me that the rules probably won't affect um, those that do send those dirty trick texting, just exactly what happened with Representative Byron as much, because they do come from sometimes untraceable sources or untraceable um, like third party senders. So in those cases, those people would still begin continue to send messages illegally and they would continue to be anonymous. And he also said that texting is not as much of a effective political strategy because in his in his view, most people are gonna get get the phone. They do see it, but they kind of ignore it. It's not something they're going to take seriously. So it does depend on opinion and how they they interpret the effectiveness of this tactic. There's no like straight response to that. You mentioned that having that extra sentence at the end would increase the cost um, for campaigns. How how much do texts like this usually cost to send? Okay, so I got information from one political consultant, and he told me that the average cost for these campaigns can cost an average between 10 to 25 cents per message. And again, that message does have a character limit. So if they did want to keep the same message and add this line, that might even be a new text. So depending on how that would be broken down, it could potentially even double the cost for each um, text because it is a larger message that has to be sent. 
In your article, you mentioned a past situation where political texts were spreading rumors about candidates. Could you talk about that? Yes, of course. So those are the dirty trick texting that I mentioned earlier in the interview. And those are basically, they're kind of not identified. Um, they're obviously not coming from the candidates' official campaigners. It's not an official text coming through. So the the goal of this rule is to increase transparency. Um, and this is debatable, but these texts that were sent before, they would fall into the category of things that are already illegal. Like th those are already things that are false, that is misinformation, and that is obviously coming from a non-official source. So it is unclear how much this new regulation will impact those those texts because those people are already doing something that is illegal. Many times they're coming from third party, they're coming from bots, and they could be untraceable even. So it depends if the if the regulation would impact those people. It's um I, I can't tell. So um in the 2020 election, Byron Donalds, he was a representative, a Republican representative, and there was a text being sent out that basically said that he was dropping out of the election on the day of the election. Um, and thousands of people got that text and it wasn't coming from him, it was misinformation. So at the time he had a disclaimer come out saying that that was not his own um, and debatably it did impact his results in the election. So um, that that is what the rule is also kind of aiming to do is you have to identify who is sending those messages which that one false text did not that was fresh take florida's carolina ilvento speaking with producer sarah mandio you're listening to the rewind from wuft news stay with us Explore the history and culture of our state as the Florida Historical Society presents Florida Frontiers. Discover how history impacts our lives today as we travel to historic sites from Pensacola to Key West and all points in between. From native people to Spanish settlers to cracker cowmen and beyond, we examine the diverse heritage of the Sunshine State. That's Florida Frontiers presented by the Florida Historical Society. Sunday morning at 7.30 on WUFT 89.1 90.1. Welcome back to The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host, Melissa Fato. We've reached our last story for today about Madison, a small, historically black city an hour east of Tallahassee. Producer Malia Leiden spoke with Fresh Take Florida's Stephen Walker on how this rural community is caught in the middle of a controversial redistricting plan by Governor Ron DeSantis. I've really wanted to dive into the redistricting process because it's something that can seem like a really abstract concept if you're not really tuned into politics. It happens every 10 years with the census and because of COVID, the census was delayed and all these different things. So it's kind of been something out of the news cycle, but it's something that's really heated up in the Florida legislature right now, as it has in many other states as well. I was looking at different congressional maps that were being proposed and different maps from the House and the Senate in Florida. And then the governor, actually proposed his own map for Congress 
which is not an unprecedented step, but it's a rare step for a governor to do. And that's significant because the maps pass as bills, so they need to be signed by the governor. And he's hinted at a veto. He's hinted at vetoing if the maps don't match his, which right now they don't. Um, The Senate map that they passed does not match the one that DeSantis has. But um, looking at those maps, I tried to see where potentially things were shaking up. And one of those shakeups was in the 5th Congressional District, which runs from Tallahassee all the way east to Jacksonville. And through that, there's a small town called Madison. From there, my research continued. Madison is a demographically Black town in one of Florida's Black districts. And that district would be wiped off the map, basically, under DeSantis's plan. So that's where I really started with my reporting was there and just digging and going on the streets there and talking to people. And can you describe Madison, Florida to me? What's the area like? It's really, really small. I made the mistake of going on a Monday and everything in town was closed. I drove there from Gainesville. It was about an hour and 45 minutes and no one was there because it's a really small town. Nothing's open on Sundays or Mondays. Like the perspective is there's one strip of like businesses and the rest is like a little bit of suburb and then land. It's got a population of about 3,000 people and it's in Madison County, which is mostly rural. So it's literally right off of I-10 and that's the only way that you can get there. Can you take me through a little bit more about your reporting process and some of the information that you learned? I went and looked at where redistricting stands right now or at the time. Um, in the legislature where what things have been passed, what was happening, what was being affected. And then after that, I started reaching out to the congressperson who represents it, um, Al Lawson, who would likely not be in office if DeSantis's plan passes, because the voting demographics and everything just don't favor a Democrat in the newly drawn district he'd be in. But I, I reached out to his office about like a comment and they had issued a statement. They directed me to that, um, reached out to the governor's office for comment. And they, they referred me to their statement on it because it has been like a hotly contested thing from a political standpoint, like between the parties and then going on the streets and talking to people. Can you tell me a little bit about the differing perspectives you heard from on this issue? So the demographics of the area for the city itself in Madison are majority Black. So uh, with that, it's majority Democratic. And it was actually surprising as I went and talked to people, a lot of the business owners, it's a it's a demographic that mostly leans, leans right anyways with small business owners. But there's like a hard Trump support group like in Madison because Madison County itself is red. So it's like a small blue town in a, like a red county. So it was pretty polarizing, actually, talking to people. You would get people who I showed them, like, it's, it's a quote in the story. You show them the map, like, proposed and current. It's like, what do you think of this change? And there was somebody who's like, hell yeah, like, I'm all for that. And then some people, like another person I talked to named Billy, he looked at that and was like, that's just undermining the democratic process. Like, that's not representative of the area, like, what the district is. It was really a mixed reaction. I wouldn't necessarily say like people were angry. It's more so frustration. There was a, a source on my story. His name was Jerome Weish. 
He's a 73-year-old, I believe, long like lifelong resident of Madison, and he's like the city manager right now. The sense I got from him was more so like exhaustion because it's been a fight like their, his entire life for representation in you know government, and he's saying that like losing that could be like having to start over again, and it's just probably frustrating. And has there been any updates or new information that you've learned since your story was released? After it came out was when it was sent to like the, uh, the bills, the joint resolution between the house and Senate for the maps was sent to the house floor to be voted on. They did a second reading. There was an amendment proposed and they tabled it and they're talking about it again today on uh, Wednesday, the second And it's probably not going to get passed until sometime next week because the governor's office is interjected again. And they asked the Florida Supreme Court for an opinion on specifically the fifth district, which is what the story is about, because the DeSantis administration, as you as aware, like they claim it's a like has this as it stands right now. The fifth district is an unconstitutional gerrymander. Now, that district was redrawn halfway through last decade because it was ruled an unconstitutional gerrymander. It was drawn from like North Florida through Central Florida like a snake. It was kind of crazy. And they redrew it the way it was, and it was approved by the Supreme Court. But in their defense, the Supreme Court is built very different now than it was in, I think, 2015. The governor is hoping for a favorable ruling in that sense. And then once I would say there's an opinion from the Supreme Court, they could move to draw different maps. It's going to it's gonna end up being a kind of a standoff between the governor and the legislature, which is also the legislature is controlled on both sides by Republicans, but they still haven't passed a map that reflects DeSantis's map that he wants, which is going to be an awkward situation where if it gets to his desk and it's not what he sees, is there a standoff between party leadership and Republicans in the state? What would you say is the significance or biggest takeaway people should have from your story? In the United States Congress, Florida has 27, I believe, uh, representatives. It'll be 28 after the census. There are five Black representatives from the state of Florida, four of which are Democrats, one is a Republican. And under DeSantis's plan, the Black representative from this area that represents a mostly Black district would no longer be in Congress, likely. Like, I don't believe he would win his election in a new district. And the district itself, which is Tallahassee through Jacksonville, is almost a majority Black. It's like 49%. That representation would go away. So you're talking about Black representation being reduced and critics from the, of this idea would tell you that it, you know, reduces minority representation and suppresses people's voices. Is there anything else that you feel is important for people to know on this topic as a whole? These changes stay in place, barring a Supreme Court ruling on a district for 10 years, at least, and it can affect the way legislatures vote and the way Congress votes for a long time, um, at least until the next census happens. Stay informed and follow the coverage because I do plan on having other stories about redistricting. That was Fresh Take Florida's Stephen Walker talking with producer Malia Leiden.
That's all for this episode. The Rewind from WUFT News is produced by Ariana Aspidu, Sarah Mandile, Malia Leiden, and Melissa Fato. Our executive producer is Sky LeBron. WUFT News is operated out of the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. Remember to follow us at WUFT News on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest stories. I'm Melissa Fato. Thanks for listening.